Well, good morning. The, uh, the clock that I look at in the back a minute ago said I was at over by an hour and 15 minutes, so I didn't know how this was going to go, but they just reset it, so my joke fell flat. Anyway, uh, I'm Joel Lingenfelter. I am the executive pastor here. There was some debate last service whether or not this is or is not plaid. Um, I don't think it's plaid, but, you know, whatever. If you were here, Tony described me as the big guy that wears plaid, so I guess that makes him the short guy that doesn't wear plaid. I, I don't know what else to say, but... But he's not here, so I can say whatever I want. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, would you uh, join me as we open in prayer? Gracious Heavenly Father, just thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth, and we thank you for your love. Uh, just be with us. May your spirit guide our hearts and minds as we dig through your scripture today. We love you, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, so if you need a Bible this morning, please put your hand up, and our ushers would be happy to give you one. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take this home with you. Uh, if you prefer to use a device, the YouVersion Bible app has an events tab, and in there is a link to LEFC, Lancaster Evangelical Free Church, and you will see all the verses that we'll use this morning. Uh, it's nice and easy and convenient, but the important thing is that you have access to the Word of God and that you can read it yourself. So we're continuing this morning in the book of James, and to get to the book of James, open your Bible, turn to the back, and work your way forward, and you'll find it sandwiched between Hebrews and Peter. It's not usually that hard to find, if you know those little shortcuts, and we are in chapter one. We'll begin with verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, the first service did the same thing. Come on. This is the word of the Lord. There we go. I, I shouldn't need to prep you like Tom does every time. But, but anyway, thank you. So James opens his letter talking about trials and temptation. And Tom Daly Jr., our elder chair, he covered that in a sermon a few weeks ago called Pure Joy. And from there, James moves on to the idea that that we might doubt when we're under trial and discusses that. And then he, he addresses the idea that trials might cause us to question who we are in Christ. And he reminds us that no matter what our financial position, we are to rely on him. Something that is a little more difficult for those of us who aren't wondering where our next meal will come from. But that brings us, after last week, it brings us to verse 12. And at first reading, it might seem odd that James revisits the topic he was addressing at the very beginning. It's almost like he forgot he mentioned it, but, but that's not it at all. He's addressing it to be sure the reader understands that just as trials can lead to doubt in our lives, trials may also bring temptation. So it starts off with considerate pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kind, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. 
So James starts off with your faith, trials bring testing, which brings perseverance. And then look what he writes in verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. So that perseverance has happened because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. So trials lead to testing. Testing leads to perseverance. Perseverance leads to blessing. And Pastor Tony will talk about blessing next week. He left me to talk about sin this week. Uh, he likes to pretend he gives us the good ones, but, he, but <laughs> anyway, no, thank you. I, I, I love working with Tony. He is a, an incredible, incredible servant of God, and I love serving alongside him. But here's the thing. Trials can produce other things besides perseverance, perseverance or doubt or lamenting our position in life. They also can produce temptation. For example, think back to the book of Exodus when the people were leaving Egypt. Right now, if you haven't read Exodus recently, I think WBF's doing an amazing series in Exodus. Uh, but if you haven't read it, hopefully you've at least seen the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, right? So, so the people, they've left Egypt, and now they're at the base of the mountain, and Moses has gone up onto Mount Sinai. He's gone up to receive the law. He is communing with God. And, but it takes a long time. And the people begin to get impatient. They begin to wonder, is this trial of, of being in the desert, of being away from our homes, it can't have been comfortable. They never know where their food's gonna come from. Like, is, what do we do? And they began to think, maybe Moses won't even come back. And they stopped trusting God, and they reached for a human solution, which is they made a golden calf, of course. Like, when's the last time you did that, right? But, you know, we laugh until you think about the fact that what were they doing? Well, they were taking their wealth and applying it to the problem the only way they knew how, which was to make an idol. In our day and age, we take our wealth and we apply it to problems as well. We just don't necessarily make a golden calf. I've never run into anybody who's done that. But we do similar things. We stop trusting God and we begin to trust in something else. <clears throat> So how do we respond when we experience trials and are tempted to dishonor God? Well, at the very beginning, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. So we see trials can produce perseverance, but they can also produce temptation. Now James anticipates, or, or perhaps someone has already said this to him, that, that, that I guess that means that temptation comes from God. And, and if that temptation that came out of that trial comes from God, well maybe all temptation comes from God, and if all temptation comes from God, then I guess God is responsible when I sin. Did you see how that logic just sort of came completely off the rails? It started with a trial that God has brought to improve your faith, to test your faith and bring perseverance that leads to blessing. But because it also tempted, maybe God brings all this temptation and maybe God's responsible when we sin. And, and, and that's, that's not right, is it? So let's take a look at Genesis chapter three. Go all the way to the beginning. Um, 
And we'll look at chapter 3 and we'll start in verse 11. See, what's going on here is a classic blame shift, right? So we see this in our society all the time. Every time a politician takes office, what's the first thing they do? They blame the person that came before them for everything bad, right? All the bad stuff is my predecessor's fault. All the good things, those are on me. And everybody does that, right? It's as old in politics as lying. Like, it is just universal. They all do it. Uh, my apologies if you were a politician. Uh, but, but it's not just politicians. So employees, when the company's not doing well, they blame who? The boss, right? The boss is the reason we're not doing well. The boss is terrible. The boss makes all the mistakes. And if you talk to the boss, who does he blame or she blame? The employees, right? Well, it's the employees. I don't, my employees, they don't think, they don't do these things right. Or, or maybe they have a good relationship with their employees and instead they blame the economy or, or sunspots or something, right? Like, like something's gotta be to blame other than me. But it's even simpler than that, right? So have you ever broken up a fight between children? Right? What's the first thing that's said? He started. he started it. She started it. They did it. Right? And, and that's universal. Like when the first time I said that to my parents, they didn't act like they'd never heard that before. <laughs> because it's been going on for a long, long time. Uh, so now we're at Genesis chapter three. We'll start in verse 11. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So did you see what just happened? God asked the question, did you do that one thing, the one thing I told you not to do? And Adam goes, well, it's kind of your fault. I mean, as the woman you gave me, she's the one who did it. And then God goes to the woman like, are you kidding me? And she's like, well, it's a snake. It's his fault. Blame shifted to blame shifted to blame shifted. Adam sinned, he blamed Eve, and then God, and then Eve blamed the serpent, the groundwork for they started it goes all the way back to the very beginning. It's in our very nature not only to sin, but to try to blame someone else when we do. Blame shifting was an issue at the beginning. It was an issue when Aaron tried to blame the fire for bringing forth the calf. It was an issue when James wrote his letter, and it's an issue today. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. So this trial conversation, it does create a question. Where does temptation come from? Is it from God? And James makes it clear God cannot be tempted. But we have to ask the question, why? Well, he cannot be tempted because God is holy. What does it mean that God is holy? When Hebrew, the word is kadash, and kadash means holy, okay, sacred, consecrated, set apart, pure, innocent, free from impurity, perfect in goodness and righteousness, 
exalted and my favorite, worthy of complete devotion. Scripture makes it abundantly clear that God is holy. If we look in Isaiah 6, I'll turn there, kind of in the middle, after Psalms and before Jeremiah. Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Would make a great song, wouldn't it? To be holy is to be perfect. And perfect is not a word we are used to applying to, to living creatures. And, and it's even more foreign to us to think through what it's like to be perfect because perfect people are hard to come by. So I wanna consider something a little different as an illustration. Sorry, here we go. How many of you know what note I just played? Right, so we have a couple of guesses. How about now? See, got that one right, the second one. A very, very small portion of the population has something called perfect pitch. And it involves two things. Number one is to know the exact note that is being played at any given time, including identifying all the notes being played. And secondly, the ability to reproduce those sounds on command without any reference. So our, our friend over here that guessed one right and one wrong, that's not perfect pitch, right? That's by definition not perfect. Now, I don't know if you've ever really thought about perfect pitch before. Have you ever heard a barbershop quartet, right? The first thing that happens is a guy pulls out a little harmonica and goes, mm, plays one note. The pitch pipe, and why do they do that? So that everybody has a reference point to sing from. But with perfect pitch, you don't need a pitch pipe, you just need to know the song starts on A, and off you go. So if you say to a person with perfect pitch, hey, give me the A above middle C, they're gonna get it right every time. Now I have a question. How many of you know I didn't just play the A above middle C? See, in the first service, there was somebody. And when I, I don't know if I, if I missed anybody here, I apologize, but he knew immediately. And then it was interesting to watch him shake his head as I said what I said next, right? Because for someone that has perfect pitch, if you don't, if you say, oh, that's the A above middle C, it's a little bit like me pointing at the screen and saying, don't you love the pink backdrop behind me? 
right? That's gonna bother you at some point. You're gonna be like, this, is he colorblind? Does he not see that it's blue? I'm really glad the lighting guys didn't change that between my glances. Um, is he colorblind? Did he not see that it's blue? For a person with perfect pitch, they knew immediately Joel didn't play an A, right? So here's, here's where it gets worse, right? That's fine, but now, thankfully, records have come back. So this, this illustration makes sense to everybody. There was a while when no one knew what a record was, but, but if I put a record on a record player and my record player's running a little slow, I probably won't notice. But that guy in the first service that had perfect pitch, he's like, no. If it's running a little slow, right? It starts to be a little slow. It'll drive him bananas because it's not right. And in fact, someone with perfect pitch, if that record player is a little slow or the band is tuned wrong, they'd rather leave the room than be here because it's distressing. It's like if I kept telling you the screen was pink and you're going, something is wrong here. It's not pink, it's blue. Like you, it, it's that big of a deal. Okay, so take that and amplify it to the infinite. God is infinitely perfect. He is holy. It is impossible for him to want to be anything but holy. There's nothing that could tempt him to be less than holy. Now, when I talk about perfect pitch, it's a great example, except that if you're tone deaf and you listen to a bunch of people that are amazing, you're great, doesn't bother you, right? But what happens when someone who is sinful is in the presence of the Almighty? Let's look back at our passage in Isaiah and read verse five. Because Isaiah is not perfect. And so he responds to what's happening in that moment and says, woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. In the presence of God, his holiness is overwhelming. And Isaiah became instantly aware of his sin. God's holiness is so great that not only can he not be in the presence of sin, but sin can't be in his presence. To tempt God would be to encourage him to be something other than perfect, something he cannot be and he could not be in the presence of. It's simply impossible. The holiness of God means he cannot be tempted. His perfect nature means that he can never tempt anyone towards sin. So if we're not tempted by God, we can't shift the blame for our sin onto him where does our sin come from? Well, when I was a kid, there was a phrase in pop culture, the devil made me do it. And while I have no interest in giving our enemy a pass on this, James sees this differently. He says, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Oh, stink, right? Our sin is our own. We can't blame God, we can't blame anyone else. In verse 15, after sin has been conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when full grown, gives birth to death. 
Because of our sin and because we have done this, what we deserve is death. James is absolutely giving it straight right here. We can't blame sin on anyone but our own evil desires. This passage reminded me of a time I invited a friend to an event and he responded with, wild horses couldn't keep me from coming. And I thought that was a really funny way to say yes. <laughs> um, but the idea, if you've never heard this phrase, um, is that even something as strong as wild horses couldn't drag him away from the event. So what James is telling us is that our evil desires are like this herd of wild horses. But imagine that you're on a rope tied to all those horses, right? How many of you think you're strong enough that if you just pull harder, you can stop them, right? Or maybe if you dug your heels in a little more, that would be enough. But of course, no matter how strong I am, no matter how much I dig in my heels, I'm never gonna be able to stop that herd from dragging me away. That made me think of Romans 7. It's a passage I have had the privilege of speaking on to this church almost 10 years ago. The Apostle Paul, who's the human author of much of the New Testament, the greatest evangelist in the history of the Christian church, the Apostle Paul had this to say about sin. In Romans 7, starting in verse 18, for I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, that I keep on doing. So if Paul, the Apostle Paul, the, the Pharisee, the man who was, had all the right pedigree, he was an apostle, he met Jesus, he was the greatest evangelist in the history of the church. He was a writer that the Holy Spirit inspired to, to write a huge amount of the New Testament. If he can't resist being dragged away by his own evil desire, what hope do we have? Well, let's start by reading what that same apostle had to say in his letter to the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13 says it this way. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. God says he will provide a way out when we are tempted. So what is that way out? Well, there are four elements to overcoming sin in the life of a believer. God's word, prayer, the fellowship of the believers, and most importantly, the Holy Spirit. And I say these are no, in no particular order except that the Holy Spirit undergirds every one of them. And so we'll cover that one last as it's the most important. But the first piece of the way out from sin and temptation is to spend time in God's word. You know, when, when I was in middle school, I was convicted of my own sin in such a way that I knew I needed more of God's word in my life. And I'm terrible at memorizing things. If you've heard me in membership class or other things, I tend to kind of quote scripture, <laughs> maybe miss a few words here or there, or maybe paraphrase a bit. Uh, <clears throat> but I, that wasn't good enough. I wasn't willing to, to just make an excuse, well, I'm not good at memorizing. So I wrote the verses down on little pieces of paper and I put them in my wallet. 
One of the verses I wrote down was 1 Corinthians 10, 13 that I just quoted. But the second was a passage from Psalm 119. It goes like this, Psalm 119, starting in verse nine. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Now the translation I had in middle school, it said, how can a young man keep his way pure? And, and I felt like that just had my name on it, right? How can Joel, young man, people don't say that about me anymore. Anyway, how can a young man keep his way pure? And Psalm 119 is amazing. You know, I would bet a lot of you have never read it because you're intimidated by how long it is. But if you really wanna understand and you really want us to hear from someone that is just completely in love with God and completely in love with his word, make the time to read Psalm 119. This brief excerpt gives us a little glimmer of God's plan. How do we stay pure? How do we honor God? We live according to his word. And to live according to his word, you have to know his word. And the only way to know his word is to spend time in it. 2 Timothy 3 says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. If you wanna know how to stand up under temptation, if you want to do the good things of God, if you wanna be equipped to serve God, you need to know his word. It's his word that teaches us to love God, to love people, to live truth, and to proclaim Jesus. You don't have to memorize the whole Bible from start to finish before you can do that. You just need to continually be working to know his word better, to seek God by spending time in his word. And let's be honest, every one of us could spend more time in God's word and less time reading or watching other things, right? So what's the second element? Prayer. Matthew 26, 41 says, watch and pray. It's Jesus speaking to his disciples. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Watch and pray because the flesh is weak. Sin is like wild horses dragging us to where we don't wanna go. And in our flesh, we cannot overcome its power. That's why Jesus tells us to pray. You know, one of the wonderful things about Jesus is he doesn't just tell us to pray, but he sets that example. Things went really well, what's Jesus do? He gets away from the crowd and prays. He needs to figure out who should the 12 disciples be. Spends time in prayer. He's facing the cross. What does he do? He gets away and he spends time in prayer. The list goes on. The New Testament shows example after example of Jesus praying, including praying for the faith of an individual when he prays for Peter, and even praying for us in John 17. Quite simply, prayer was integral to the life of Jesus, and it should be integral to the life of every Jesus follower. Spend time in God's word and spend time with God in prayer. The third element to God's way out for us is through the fellowship of believers. It says this in Hebrews 10. 
And let us consider how we may spur one another towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. It is in community that we spur one another on to love and good deeds. Now, I'm going to venture a guess that every single person listening to me knows someone who seemed to go off the rails a bit over the last few years. Perhaps someone you knew that was loving and gentle became fearful and angry. Maybe you knew someone who became obsessed with the news or politics or or both. Maybe you knew someone who went from being your friend to never talking to you. Well, why did these things happen? It's obviously a complex question, but I believe one issue is that many replaced community with isolation. Now, that's not unique to the last few years. That's why it's addressed in Scripture. Uh, People have been making excuses to do life alone as long as there have been excuses. But it's in community with one another that we can point each other to Jesus. When we are in community with fellow believers, we have the opportunity to be gentle, to be loving with one another, to care for one another, to, to pray for one another, to bear their burdens, And these are the things that encourage us to do the things of God rather than being dragged away by the things of the flesh. So being part of this church is one thing. Listening to me preach today is good, but I have a question for you. Are you known? Do people know who you are? Do people know your name? Is there someone in your life who will notice when you're starting to edge away from the things of God? Is there someone who will spur you on to love and good deeds? If not, you need to be in community. So on the screen, there's a QR code. Kind of looks like robot barf, right? Um, Most of your phones, if you point the camera at it, should be able to take you straight to a website. And what that website will do is say, help me get into community. We'll ask you a few questions. We'll go direct to one of our pastors here. Uh, I look forward to blowing up his inbox. Um, But here's the thing. Maybe you need to be in a life group. Maybe you need to be in an ABF or you need somebody who's, who's going through the same things that you are right now. Let us help you. Let us help you find your people. Let us help you find someone who will spur you on to love and good deeds. Don't be a stranger. Don't think you can hold back the herd of wild horses on your own. Take the step and ask for help. If that didn't work, uh, that link will be on our website as well and certainly on the notes tomorrow when they're released. So time in, time in the word of God, prayer, fellowship of the believers, each of these is an important element to resisting temptation, but none of them are truly effective without the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.5 says it this way. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. You see, the Holy Spirit is the key because as believers, the Holy Spirit lives in us and gives us power. It gives us power to live the life that God has called us to live 
and power to overcome the temptations of the flesh. It continues in verse eight and nine. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. So let's talk about that. Those who live in accordance with the spirit have their mind on what the spirit desires. What does the spirit desire? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I hear a few of you saying these things. It's kind of like I didn't come up with them, right? The spirit desires the things of God and works in us to produce a life that is honoring to God. A life that will not be without trials, but those trials will test your faith and bring about perseverance, which brings about blessing. So how do you get the Spirit? Where does the Spirit come from? In John 14, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Every believer is indwelled with the Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit do? Well, he interprets scripture for us, intercedes for us in prayer, is at the center of every gathering of believers and is the source of our spiritual gifts. And it's through the power of the Holy Spirit that we have a way out from temptation. It's through the power of the Holy Spirit that we can walk with God in joyful obedience to his commands. Instead of digging our heels in against wild horses, when we operate through the Spirit, we tie those wild horses off to a mountain and they become powerless against that rock. I can tell you, no amount of horses are gonna move that rock. Verse 15, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Every one of us in this room, every person watching the stream, Everyone alive on this earth today has done things they're not proud of. Every one of us have done things that are not in obedience with the word of God. When we do this, when we fail to live up to God's standards, that's called sin. And although for all of human history we've been trying to shift the blame for our sin to someone else, James tells us we are responsible for that sin. And the problem identified here is that our sin leads to death. If you don't know Jesus, you're living under a death sentence for your sin. And no one wants to live with a death sentence on their head. We are sinful creatures, and sin brings forth death, which is bad news. Our sins, they are many. But there's good news. God's mercy is more. God is merciful, and as a result of his mercy, there is good news. In Romans chapter six, verse 23, it says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The gift. You can have peace with God. You can be forgiven for everything you've ever done and everything you will ever do by becoming a follower of Jesus. You can live a life in the power of the Holy Spirit 
a life that finds joy in the trials, a life with purpose and meaning. Because Jesus, the Son of God, he came to earth, he took on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived a perfect life. He was, he, when he was tempted, he did not sin. And then he went to the cross on our behalf. He paid the price for our sins with his blood. And on the third day, he rose from the grave victorious over death. The stone that sealed the tomb was cast aside and Jesus emerged a risen savior. He emerged our risen savior. So if you don't have the Holy Spirit, if you are not a follower of Jesus, let me tell you how you get started. In Romans chapter 10, it says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. I've been a follower of Jesus for close to 50 years, and yet I don't live a perfect life. My sins, they are many, and I am grateful that God's mercy is more. But every day I wake up, I ask the Lord to guide me. I ask him to keep me from sin. My spirit is willing, but my flesh is weak. Every one of us needs Jesus, and every one of us needs the Holy Spirit in our lives. And every one of us needs to continually seek the Lord, spend time in his word, spend time in prayer, spend time in community, and do these things by the power of the Spirit. Our passage reminds us that our sin is our own, that we are responsible, and that unfortunately we do fall short, and that sin should give birth to death in each one of us. Thankfully, God's mercy and grace are greater than all our sins. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, just thank you for who you are. Thank you for the incredible gift that you've given us. Thank you that you have called us to be your children. Lord, if there's someone here that has, has never heard this before, that, that does not have your spirit, that has not called upon you, just ask they would do so now, that they would say, Lord, I admit that I have fallen short, that I have sinned, I have done things that have separated me from you. I know you are holy and I cannot be in your presence. Lord, I believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose again for my sins. And Lord, I choose to follow him. I ask that you would, would make Jesus the Lord of my life. And Lord, that you would forgive me of those sins and fill me with your spirit. Lord, this is the prayer that each one of us in this room has done in one form or another to say that we are about you and we will live our lives with purpose that you have given us. Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you that although we are responsible for our sins, you took that responsibility. You took the penalty for that and you bore it on the cross for, on our behalf. Lord, our sins, they are many, but your mercy is more. And we are so grateful. Thank you for who you are. We love you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So one of the, the sacraments of the church, one of the things that we do is communion. And communion is where we take a moment and we stop and we remember what Jesus did for us, the sacrifice on the cross that he made on our behalf. It's a sacred and a holy event that proclaims his death until he returns. If you are a follower of Jesus, whether you gave your life to him today, maybe in prayer a moment ago with me, 
or 50 or more years ago, we invite you to participate with us this morning. If you failed to grab some elements when you came in, there's gentlemen or with trays here in the balcony as well as down here. Please raise your hand. They'll be happy to give you one. We're going to take a few minutes prepare our hearts for communion. We're going to sing a song that I fell in love with at the Evangelical Free Church Theology Conference about a year ago. It's rich in theology and it ties directly into what we just talked about today. Consider the third verse. What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood neath a, neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Our desires, our lusts, our flesh gives birth to sin. And sin gives birth to death. And Jesus took that death on himself. And we have a debt to him we could never repay. But he gives us the gift of eternal life freely because of his mercy and grace. So as we begin this song, spend some time in prayer, asking him to prepare your heart and mind to receive the elements. Confess your sin, thank him for his mercy, and praise him for what he's done. We'll take the elements uh, together as the song concludes. Praise the Lord, his mercy is born. Sins they are many, his mercy is more. Could remember no wrongs we have done, omniscient, all knowing, he counts not their sum. Mercy is 
lavished on us. His blood was the payment, his life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many, his mercy is For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take it together. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take this together. Gracious Heavenly Father, you tell us to do this, to remember what you have done. Lord, what you have done is amazing. We are so thankful. We are responsible for our sin, but you took that responsibility. You paid that price, and you freely gave us eternal life with you. Lord, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your love. You are incredible, incredible to us. Lord, thank you for the blessings and the way you have cared for us. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to go through this, to look at what you have to say to us, and to take to heart how can we stand up under those trials. May we be about you. May we be about your spirit. And may you give us the power to live a life worthy, worthy of the calling that we have received. We love you, Lord. We pray that you would just bless us and keep us close to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.
Let's stand together and sing in response to the greatness of God. It's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise, pour out our praise. It's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise to you only. Great are you, Lord. So it's your breath. It's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise, pour out our praise. It's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise to you, oh, it's your breath. up and worship to him. Greater you, Lord. 
times and great. respond to your greatness the only way we know how which is to fall before you in worship and to praise the Lord Lord we look forward to the day that all the earth will join that song but today we will not wait we sing and praise and worship for you knowing that you are holy that you are set apart you are beyond us and we by all means, should be separated from you. But great are you, Lord. His mercy is more. So we thank you for that. We praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would like to pray with anybody today, if you'd like to talk through any sin that has been in your life or just encouragement or trials that you are facing right now, we'd love to invite you to come pray with somebody in the encounter room, which is back the corner of the room to my left. We'd love to be able to pray with you, reach you out to the office, connect you with community, whatever it is. In the meantime, let's rest in the presence of our holy God, not just in this moment, but moving into the week and throughout the rest of our day. So, church, go in peace. You are dismissed. <laughs>